We're now living in news cycles that have warped into high speed. One astonishing news event after another have been crashing in on our consciousness. I've heard from many people that they've taken a news sabbatical to compensate for this anxiety-producing cascade that can range from just one news check-in a day to a week-long break to waiting till after November 3rd. Consider, it was about two weeks ago that the New York Times had accessed Donald Trump's tax returns, revealing that in 11 of the 18 examined years, he paid no income tax at all, and in 2017, just $750. In another time, or in the alternate universe we used to inhabit, that news would have stuck around in vibrant public conversation. But true to our moment, it was overwhelmed within the coronavirus miasma of resurgent cases and our president's own infection. And now, a couple of weeks on, that seems ancient news. But not unimportant to our political moment. I mention it because the tax issue has vexed our politics forever, and today especially since candidate Trump promised to release his tax returns and never did. But also, true to form, there are hot differences of opinion in the editorials on this matter. The Times began their editorial on the subject this way. In the years before he became president, Donald Trump lived lavishly while paying little in federal income taxes. This illustrates the profound inequities of the tax code and the shambolic state of enforcement. Whereas the Wall Street Journal asks, is it a scandal if Mr. Trump legally exploited the tax code's treatment of chronic business losses to pay little tax? Hardly. Congress littered the codes with loopholes aimed at assisting real estate businesses, among others. Democrats write a tax code to please their corporate donors and then selectively attack CEOs or businesses that use the loopholes. A lot of instant partisan skirmishes erupted around how jobs are best generated, the fast-expanding gulf between rich and poor, who should be taxed, how much, and general issues of fairness. And like every other topic in this convulsive season, the conversation has been shrill, still is. No doubt about it, taxes will remain a very big issue as we move into 2021. Of course, ours isn't the first generation to sweat the matter of taxes. Not the first for using taxes as a political weapon. Not the first to argue about a government's role for funding various priorities. Americans seem to have a special, if chronically agitated, place in the gut for this battle, but, but we certainly are not the first people to suffer tax indigestion. As you just heard, Today's gospel lesson reveals that vexing issues of taxation were very much a part of this scene in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So we're in good company. Jesus' critics attempt one more cleverly conceived entrapment with taxation as bait. Here's the setup. Two opposing parties, 
conspire to silence Jesus. They join forces, in other words. The text says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said, along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were allied with a politician named Herod Antipas, who had been appointed king of the Jews by Rome. Since their place was secured by the occupying government, they supported paying the tax to Caesar. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were committed to every detail of Jewish law and opposed paying Caesar's tax for religious reasons. Likely, their opposition was based less on the fact of taxation per se than the requirement to pay it with a coin that carried the image of the divine Caesar. Use of the coin was a form of idolatry. As stipulated in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath. Our reading couldn't be timelier, really, given our overheated exertions on the matter of taxes. We might get a sense of the strange bedfellows the Pharisees and Herodians made if we could ever conceive of an intimate alliance between the editorial pages of the Times and the Wall Street Journal against a common enemy. In Jesus' case, his critics think they've caught him in the crosshairs of an irresolvable dilemma. If he said it was lawful to pay taxes, he would be seen as a Roman sympathizer. But if he opposed the taxes, he could be accused of treason against Rome. Whichever direction he took, his enemies would have him out of the way, each for their own perverse reasons. But as usual, Jesus threads the wisdom needle when he asks his critics whose head is on the coin, used for the tax, which prompts his very famous rejoinder, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. Pretty clever and confounding, worthy of long reflection. It doesn't suggest an easy solution in our postmodern democracy, but it does orient on the things that matter most, which can't help but find expression in our relationship to money and ethics and the common good. We suffer, I think, from rushing off too soon to political soundbites. There are no easy policy solutions suggested here. Indeed, Jesus raises the bar on what intelligent conversation concerning such a prickly matter might entail. Just what are the things that belong to God anyway? That's the question that haunts. We surmise that Jesus is not inclined to advocate political insurrection here. This could have been an opportunity to establish his case. But no, as some of his followers evidently misunderstood at the time, he wasn't opposed to civil authority per se. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar would seem tacit acknowledgement of temporal authority. There's profound paradox here. And the confounding elements of his teaching pile high. A decade or two later, Paul, now a follower after the way of Jesus, will give these instructions to the Roman Christians. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, 
for there is no authority except from God. Also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Interestingly, unlike many Jews, Paul was a Roman citizen, which he uses in his defense when thrown in jail. And while we don't know the details of his death, a Roman court was likely responsible. But we're still left with the second half of Jesus' response, give to God the things that are God's. And we're pushed further down into the depths of understanding. At the least, we could say that God being God, Rome's authority is only a second-tier affair. It only has derivative power. There is nothing here that gives the state an exalted divine mandate. Give it what it's due, so long as it doesn't conflict with what is due to God. This is especially important for some contemporary Christians to take to heart, who might succumb to the exalted idea about a so-called Christian nation advancing a very triumphalist form of Christianity. Temporal authority is always second tier. It can only be second tier. To insist on making it something more is a form of pernicious idolatry. Maybe like me, you have seen some Christian imagery that has included an American flag situated in sentimental depictions with Jesus. The early Christians, in answering what belongs to God, referred to the image on the coin. Along with Jesus, they reasoned that since the image on the coin bore Caesar's face, it belonged to him. Human beings, on the other hand, bearing God's image, belonged to God. Coins were Caesar's, but humans, humanity, every person, belonged to God, since, as Genesis said, they were made in the image of God. Boiling this logic down into its essence, we're thrown back onto the summary command of Jesus that serves as next week's gospel lesson and sits inscribed in our sanctuary's sparkling mosaics. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is no accident that this teaching follows right on his statement that we're to give to God the things that belong to God. What belongs to God? Our love of God, neighbor, and self. That's what belongs to him. There's no question this has profound implications on how we understand our relationship to our government. We're a participatory democracy. We have things to say and to do on behalf of the common good. What do we expect of it? How shall it conduct its business for the benefit of whom? What does a conscience formed by love of God, neighbor, and self demand of Christian citizens? Matters of human dignity, opportunity, and compassionate regard spill forward. Love ultimately works its way out into tangible outcomes from everyday interactions to public policy. Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind here, who took seriously both the temporal authority of government and the things that belong to God, never confusing the one for the other, but clearly understanding how the first loyalty, our loyalty to God, impacted the second loyalty. Like Paul, he found himself in jail as a result. 
And like both Jesus and Paul, he lost his life. Love of God, neighbor, and self had then and continues to have traction in how we understand our responsibility for the common good. Now, this doesn't lead to crystal clear policy in matters of, say, taxation, for instance. But for the followers of Jesus, it sets the ground under our feet and lifts our gaze toward a future that honors what God honors. And when we do that, we're reflecting God's image as we make our way in the world, holding fast to loving what God loves, striving as best we can with whatever ways we can to build a community of generous, compassionate regard. Caring like the blazes for the well-being of others can't be owned by a single political identity because politics are messy, complicated temporal affairs. Witness the shenanigans of the Herodians and the Pharisees. But given our limitations, bounded by time, giving to God what belongs to God sets a very high bar for what to expect of our government, ourselves, and our commitments that are forged and refined on the anvil of love.